1: Welcome to The Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Welcome to our latest edition of The Bully Pulpit brought to you by the Center for the Political Future at the USC Dornsife College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences. Uh, I'm Bob Shrum, the director of the center, and I'm just here today to introduce our discussion on the rising impact of the Hispanic electorate in America. Our panelists are Cesar Martinez, founder of MAS Consulting, a veteran consultant who has been active in five U.S. presidential campaigns specializing in the Hispanic vote. He most recently worked for the Lincoln Project, mobilizing Hispanics to vote for Joe Biden. And he also served on the Bush-Cheney, Romney-Ryan, and Jeb Bush presidential campaigns. So Cesar, we've been on opposite sides a number of times. Uh, Antonio Villaraigosa was the 41st mayor of Los Angeles. He served two terms from 2005 to 2013. He also chaired the Democratic National Convention and he is a partner and co-chair in Mercury Public Affairs. Mindy Romero is founder and director of the Center for Inclusive Democracy at USC's Sol Price School of Public Policy. She's also a research assistant professor with expertise in Latino political behavior, voting rights and political participation and identity in political movements. Our moderator is Gloria Molina. We are proud to have her as a fall 2021 fellow at the Center for the Political Future. She was the first Latina elected to the California State Assembly and the first Latina, a real pioneer, to join the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors, where she served for more than two decades. Gloria, take it away.
2: Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. Well, welcome. Of course, this is Hispanic Heritage Month uh, that we are all celebrating. And today we're going to talk about the rising impact of the Hispanic electorate. So let's look back and look at 2020. We know that, that Latinos are not a monolith. In the eyes of the Democratic Party, Trump's rhetoric on immigration, everyone thought was going to put more Latino voters into the Democratic side. But in reality, Trump got more Latino votes in 2020 than he did in 2016. So what happened with the Latino vote in 2020? And um, what did Democrats get wrong? Why don't? Antonio, you want to be able to take that and maybe share with us your insight into that?
3: First of all, it's always great to be on any program with you, Gloria. As I mentioned before we got on, uh, Gloria got me started in uh, in public service, uh, naming me to the RTD board and then her alternate on the MTA board and supported uh, me in every election I've ever been in, as I have her. Bob (laughs) Good to be with you and uh, the panelists as well, all folks I know and have worked with. And, uh, you know, look, uh, there are a lot of things. We've we've said for a long time, Latinos aren't monolithic. Uh, They're not all, uh, you know, uh, they don't all have the same, uh, you know, political aspirations or concerns. Uh, Cubans are oftentimes different than, Uh, Dominicans and Puerto Ricans, Mexicans and Salvadorans. Um, But I I think there's a couple other things that have happened here as well. Uh, One, uh, I've said for a long time, Democrats don't work uh, uh, the Latino vote enough. Uh, Who doesn't vote? Um, The young, the poor and the less educated. Those three groups are loom large in the Latino electorate uh, today. Uh, And so they need more work. Uh, And unfortunately, uh, Democrats tend to only work them every four years. I think another thing that happened was a great deal of disappointment uh, with the fact that uh, we never passed an immigration reform. And that was always a big issue for us. And we had an opportunity to do that. Now, there's a big difference between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, Republicans supported a president who called Mexicans uh, rapists and criminals who said that some of us uh, from Central America and Africa come from shit countries, as he mentioned. Uh, there's certainly uh, a big chasm between uh, the policies that Democrats have uh, put forth and the policies that the Republicans have. Notwithstanding, uh, I think uh, it was clear that maybe because of the economy, and, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, some... But, Democrats, uh, Latinos rather, to a greater number than in the past, supported Republicans. There's no question about it.
2: So Cesar, um, share with us, I mean, what's the difference between a Latino voter who is in the Rio Grande Valley compared to uh, one in L.A. or one in Miami-Dade? What is what is the party getting wrong? What is the Democratic Party getting wrong on this issue? This is right up your alley.
0: Well, let, let me tell you by starting just to to what Mayor Villarraigosa was saying. I had the benefit of working with Lionel Sosa, my mentor, former boss that uh, he worked with Ronald Reagan, and Ronald Reagan, former governor of California, in fact, told him, hey, go and talk to Latinos and tell them that they should uh, come and vote Republican. And, and Lionel said, why? Well, you know, they're conservative. They small business owners. They don't like paying taxes to the government a lot. They, uh, they have family values. So definitely just go ahead and tell them. So I think that formula has worked. I wouldn't say what Democrats have done wrong, but perhaps what Republicans have done right at some point. And that is what happens. I, I worked on those three states for, uh, in Texas, in the Rio Grande Valley, and I remember that there was a, uh, a group, HRT, Hispanic Republicans of Texas, doing events with Donald Trump Jr., it's interesting. And then you had the efforts that they did with the, the Cuban community and the Venezuelan community in Florida. So it's interesting to see that when there are efforts and when they're not taken for granted, Latinos respond. I mean, I have to tell you that I've been working that particular side, not Donald Trump. In fact, in 2020, I did everything to uh, uh, make Latinos not vote for Donald Trump. And I think it worked. But in a way, because he was insulting us, as Mayor Villarragoza was saying. But the important thing is to understand that not everybody is the same. But what we share is that we want to grow. We want to work. We want to be part of the American uh, situation. So in a way, I would tell uh, Democrats Do not take Latinos for granted. And I would tell Republicans, stop bashing Latinos. I mean, literally, it's up for grabs. And whoever
2: is going to take more attention to us will start winning elections. There's no doubt the party has to campaign to that community, and there are very unique issues in each part of town, uh, in each part of the country across the board, because we don't all vote the same way. And, and both parties need to recognize and understand that. So, Mindy, let, let me ask you, um, do you think like maybe white voters today that there is a growing divide amongst college educated um, urban Latinos versus the rural on maybe not receiving a college education. Do you think there's a difference in, between that voter, like there is with the white voters?
4: Yeah, and I'll say that um, you know, certainly the data that we have is largely based on uh, exit polls. And exit polls, I'm sure everybody on this panel would agree with me, are highly problematic for, um, for subgroups, period, but particularly for the Latino community over time. And so there is some debate in terms of what exactly the numbers were for Trump, but we, we I think most of us are pretty comfortable in, in acknowledging that there was greater support for Trump in 2020 than in 2016. Um, but the numbers can, um, you know, are still, I think, up for some conversation what the exact numbers are. And the same thing when we break out uh, and try to understand the Latino community by educational level, data is not the best there either, but from what we understand, um, from what we have in terms of data, Biden won the the within the Latino community, the college-educated component um, by a wider margin um, than Trump did. And it was a much more narrow margin when we're looking at non-college-educated Latinos. So in that sense, just in terms of 2020 and the presidential race, you could talk about a divide there. But I'd like to go back just for a moment, if I may, to some of the other comments about just kind of why did we see what we saw um, as we you know it in 2020? That's okay. Um, so I, I think a couple of things. As um, said, that uh, things were up for grabs when it comes to the Latino community. And I very much agree. And I think in some ways it's not a surprise or it shouldn't be a surprise what we saw in 2020. Maybe, the, again, the exact numbers. Um, the fact that we're talking about Donald Trump and the reaction, obviously, that the Latino community as a whole had um, towards Donald Trump and his policies, um, maybe that's a surprise. But in terms of, or somewhat of a surprise, but in terms of just the Latinos voting more for, uh, at least higher, slightly higher percentages in 2020 uh, for the Republican candidate, historically, right, you know, somewhere between upper 20s to, to you know, a third of Latinos have voted for the republican presidential candidate it varies by candidate varies by year varies very much has already been said by region um by by community by um by uh, by subgroup within the latino community um but when the democratic party um and the republican party both fail to reach out to latinos it is really historically there's an opportunity there always has been within the republican party um, even in a year like 2020, with a candidate Donald Trump, and when uh, as already been stated, Latino, uh, sorry, the Democratic Party has um, had you know very uh, not effective or ineffective measures in reaching out to the Latino community, um, working off of the election cycle, coming in at the last minute, right? Not building that relationship, talking about Trump often, the rallying cry around Trump, sometimes at the expense of issues that Latinos care about even more, right? Like education, like the health, the well-being of their families, about the economy, and leaving a gap and an opening, right, for the Republican candidate to come in, who in some communities is the only of two candidates that is actually asking Latinos to participate and to vote. So there is, there's been that opportunity that I just want to emphasize. Um, and it boils down to, certainly, with um, for Democrats, right, uh, still, you know, this is nothing new, um, a misperception about the Latino vote. We talk about over and over again, it's not a monolith, but there is still not enough research in um, whether you're political or not, period, just understanding the Latino community and the de- desires and needs of the Latino community. Um, and when there is research, it's often misunderstood. It's not applied correctly or, 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 or sincerely, quite frankly. Um, and then we're left with, again, another election saying, we're trying to understand, the for some, the surprises that are seen Um, What it's always been there
2: well and certainly um in this last election we just had a statewide recall here in california uh and latinos overwhelmingly gave their vote uh to gavin newsom and voted no on that recall uh even in conservative parts of the state like orange county uh we understand that over 80 percent of latinos voted no on the recall um antonio you know in your dialogue with with other Democrats, do you think there are any takeaways that Democratic leaders should should be looking to as far as the Latino community as we go into our 2022 elections?
3: Let me uh, add something that Mindy said, because I agree with it. Sometimes Democrats on a knee jerk, you know, I mentioned that we didn't do immigration reform, and that was a big issue for us. But what people don't realize, that's not the only issue for us. Uh, we've known for a very long time uh, people care Latinos care about the economy. They care about housing. They care about health care. They care about education. They care about things that, you know, other voters, you know, Anglo, African-American voters care about. That's one. Two, I think, you know, the takeaway, first of all, in every poll that I saw, and I was watching those polls very carefully for a number of reasons that, that need go and said, but I think you can understand. Uh, Latinos were have never been, uh, you know, very supportive of Gavin Newsom. Um, I won that vote three to one uh, in the governor's race, and even even in the general, when he was running against Republicans, yes, they voted in great much greater numbers uh, for him, a majority, but not you know as overwhelming as you would have thought. Now, what happened was all the way until uh, Alder started surfacing. Latinos were the one ethnic group among Democrats that were almost 50-50 in every poll that I saw. It wasn't until Alder surfaced as the front runner that people said, hold it, this guy could be the next governor that, he, that you know, Gavin got overwhelming support among the Latino community. And I, I think, it, you know, I, I'm not here to knock him. I, I think the party doesn't understand. Of course, neither do the Republicans, just be clear. And I need to be clear about that. This is a party that, if they could, would send us all back, Uh, people like me and you back, too. Uh, Not everyone in the party, obviously, but there is a core of this party that is very right-wing. They're so right-wing that I say that, you know, and don't believe in science that they fall off the flat earth they believe in. But we've made some big mistakes. Uh, I think we need to – California was the last state to open up their schools. Republican states opened up their schools, Gloria, well before us. You know, private schools opened up, Catholic schools opened up, and kids didn't get sick and neither did their teachers. Uh, They opened them up last, outdoor dining. You know, there was no science behind uh, uh, the, the length of time that they closed those restaurants. Who works in those restaurants, Gloria? I know. I'm in those kitchens every time I go into a restaurant. Our folks work in those restaurants. They were out of a job. They got sick to a greater extent. Many, the undocumented didn't get the stimulus that everybody got. So there's just a sense that, you know, and you and I talked about it last Wednesday, they were invisible uh, to a lot of people, including to Democrats. Now again, uh, I am a Democrat, and I think we're much more visible to them than the others. They just use us. Uh, but there's no question that both parties need to really take a look, as you said. Uh, to focus on the issues that Latinos care about, that working people can't care about. You know, I started out, as you know, with the campesinos, with the UFW. Uh, you know, I was, before I even thought of running for any office until I met you, my comadre, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I, I wasn't really interested. I was an organizer, I was a union organizer and a labor organizer. And the one thing you know working with Latinos. Is most of them work? A lot of them work with their hats. Uh, They work hard and they believe in this country, but they want to that American dream like everybody else. And we're not giving it to them. We're just not. Neither party is giving it to them.
2: So, Sasa, you you know, we need we need both parties to pay attention to this community and to fight for that vote. But it was interesting in the recall how large a proportion of Latinos supported the no on on the recall and and brought i mean and basically saved gavin Newsom here in california
0: i agree with antonio definitely when elder came into the picture it was like whoops are we going to get california donald trump Uh, we won't but uh, but just remember that uh uh, 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 let me go back even how california was back when pete wilson was there that slap on the face that we've got and i remember george bush was saying the opposite he was welcoming latinos so it was uh, the, the cards were flipped. I remember also starting with Governor Bush at that time on the Iowa straw back in August of 1999, 14 months before the election, and he was saying, we need Latinos, we need your contributions. So if someone invests, definitely Latinos will come and listen. Different from Donald Trump being that a uh, he was lapping us on the face, giving us lots of trompadas, uh, but still there were people voting for them. And just going back on what Antonio was saying on the issues that we care, I worked with Mike Whitman, with Mike Murphy over there in California, I remember, when we were doing the election in 2010. And we did focus groups and we asked them, hey, what are the issues that you really care about? Economy, uh, education. Immigration was there, but it was one of the, the last one. It was like the fifth uh, idea that they were talking about. But they said, if she supports the 187 prop that Pete Wilson did, or she wants to do the Arizona law, I don't want to talk to her. So in a way, it's, it's, it's a fine balance. We care about a lot of issues, but do not bash us.
2: Mindy, talking about other issues, and we, we really do care about so many more things, and then um, uh, just the presidential election or elections, we've seen our community suffer disproportionately when it comes to covid Uh, as, as compared to other populations in this country. What are policymakers, what do they
4: need to hear from us? What are they getting wrong on this whole issue? Well, I think first, still wrapping their heads fully around the impact that it's had on the Latino community. Um, Here in California, Latinos, you know, here nationally, uh, communities of color, period, right, being impacted disproportionately by COVID in terms of case rates and death rates. That is true, and we want to acknowledge that for everyone, right, for every community that's been disproportionately impacted. But in in California, Latinos have really carried the brunt of COVID. So not only in terms of health and death, but also in terms of the economy, right, and displacement. Um, And I think recognizing that, first off, fully and understanding, of course, that the lo- there is not a short term, but there is a long term um, set of policies that need to be put in place. There's a long road back for the Latino community economically. Um, that's always the case when we look over our history, right? And we look at times of economic, um, economic downturns or crises. The Latino community often gets hit much harder and has a harder road back to recovery and gets lost. Um, with with certainty, it gets lost often in the policy conversation or gets handed policy solutions that don't really work and there isn't accountability in the long term to really see where the Latino community is, have they fully come back, um, have they come back better, have we built the right, built something that's actually going to um increase opportunity um, and uh, eliminate or reduce disparities. So I would say just accountability is probably maybe for me the biggest part of this. Um, as the policies are built, there is accountability in, built into those policies, right? Research and tracking and understanding um, in the long term what the impact is for the Latino community. I'll leave it there. But on
2: the whole COVID issue, it's hard for me to understand why Latinos are not getting vaccinated and, and not accessing services. Again, there are issues about access to healthcare that I think we should concern, be concerned about, but also what, what kind of, what can uh, politicians or what can policymakers do today to remedy situation? Is it a communication ineffective? Uh, is the outreach ineffective? I mean, do we have to walk door to door into these homes and really kind of inform families about how significantly important this is? Um, it, we have to create stronger mandates. Uh, just it just shouldn't be happening, particularly here in uh, at least in, in the urban core of Los Angeles, where it is so available. But something is wrong as to why we are so disproportionately suffering under COVID.
3: Yeah, I would say a couple of things. First of all, uh, one of it is that it, we're disproportionately the essential workers. Uh, we live in uh, overcrowded housing, sometimes uh, many families, uh, three, four families. Uh, in a house meant for one. Um, uh, Also, you know, again, kind of like uh, whites, um, uh, you know, and and blacks that are less educated, uh, they're, you know, the social media and all the falsehoods there that, you know, that you're going to get a chip uh, if you get vaccinated. So, yeah, you do need to knock on doors more. You do need to engage and Uh, more education. You do need to use people like yourself, who people respect uh, in our community, uh, to say, hey, I got vaccinated. That's what I did as soon as I did it. Uh, I did it on TV, and I did it on social media to say, hey, look, I did it. You should do it. But you got to do much more than that uh, than you would otherwise with other groups. But those are some of the reasons. Um, And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I think Mindy said it, and, uh, you know, everybody has said it on this You know, there's no question um, that Latinos um, really haven't uh, been focused on enough by our policymakers in the way that they should. And, uh, you know, uh, I've joked uh, with people, friends, you know, it wouldn't have taken me to read about it in the newspaper uh, that Latinos were being most impacted. I grew up in those communities, as you did. I would have known that from the beginning, and I would have focused on it from the beginning. And I think we need policymakers that really feel for people that work, uh, for people that struggle, for people that have to do two jobs, not just one, uh, that can't work, uh, you know, from home on Zoom like uh, the rest of us can.
2: Cesar, any ideas as to what we need to recommend to policymakers on this issue?
0: Yes, I mean, I, I would say, I mean, we're the largest group of inhabitants of the state of California, where 50% of the population growth of the country. I mean, it's, it's a nature of, uh, of of homeland security of getting Latinos vaccinated. It's not just about doing the right policy, but it's about the population. And it's interesting to see how people in third world countries are like just dying to get a vaccine. And we have so many, so many of them and we're saying no. So So I would go back and like, a, this is essential the essential workers, as Antonio was saying, we, we have the essential workers that picking up the food that delivering the food, that caring for everybody and it's essential that we have a conversation that that part of the population has to be taken care of thinking that it's not only the future of the state of California or the future of the country it's today you have to, you want to take care of America, you have to take care of Latinos
2: today. Somehow I think that the messaging isn't as perfect as it should be or or is there's not enough of it into the Latino community because it's hard to understand how so many people are still not vaccinated and how we're trying to access it. But it, we've got a long way to go there because it's still hurting our community much more so than any parts. But we wouldn't have a discussion like this. I mean, you know, there are many issues that we care about. we got to talk about immigration, whether we like it or not. It's a big issue in our community. Uh, it gets batted around every single year. Um, do you see any prospects in the future of creating a an immigration, a comprehensive immigration reform policy, the kind of policy that is really going to create a pathway to citizenship for so many uh, of the people that are presently undocumented, particularly the DREAMers? Have you heard of any movement going on in that direction? Because certainly the community is hungry for it.
4: Mindy, any ideas? You know, certainly I agree that the community is hungry for it, of course. Um, and there's great need for it, period, not just for the Latino community, right, but period for the country. Um, and and we've seen at least, um, I think it was on day one, at least with the Biden administration, right, an, an, an address in some form um, trying to keep those promises around um, comprehensive immigration reform. The problem is politics like anything else, right? Um, just in recent years, we've attempted in oh six and 2013 and and the landscape is even more challenging now um, to be able to get at least at a you know the congressional level to get um republicans to to come over and and to um to support this uh the the political landscape and the rhetoric and the environment right now is is uh incredibly difficult um so i personally i'm i'm not optimistic about um anything uh uh, in the House and Senate right now immediately, but um, what I am optimistic about, before I turn it over to my colleagues, um, is the changing public perceptions around immigration reform and more positive perceptions, right? Um, feelings, opinions about immigrants, um, not just uh, DACA, but, other, you know, immigrants, period. Um, I've certainly seen the changes in this state alone over the last 20 years, um, so it's not every group and, and, um, and not to every degree have we seen the changes, um, these positive changes, but we have seen significant changes. And um, I think that gets us to a, a place eventually, but right now um, the politics are incredibly difficult, um, certainly without, a, without the filibuster conversation.
2: And certainly what we see every single day at the border is very intimidating to everyone in this country as to what's going on at the border. Uh, and there's some tremendous challenges for this administration. Um, do you think that that people would or at least the conservatives uh, in in the House and, and Republicans as a group might consider a deal with with stronger security at the border if we could really create security at the border? Would that be a trade that they would make along the way for comprehensive immigration reform? No, you don't think so Antonio?
3: The answer is no. Look, we've been trying to do that for yeah, that's what Obama did. That's why people he deported more more people than anybody. Uh, in U.S. history. And he did that, uh, you know, not because he was anti-Mexican or anti-immigration. He supported comprehensive immigration reform. He did it because he thought uh, that by securing the border, by demonstrating that he would be tough on, uh, you know, what they call illegal immigration, uh, that, you know, he could get support in uh, the House and the Senate. He wasn't able to do that. The problem is you mentioned conservative, Gloria. These people aren't conservative. The party is dominated by right-wing people. Uh, you know, there are conservatives in the party and good people. You know, Cesar is a good man. I know, by the way, uh, Leonel Sosa is a good brother of mine. I've known him for 25 years. You know, he loves his country just like I does and do, and he loves his community. But there's no question. I mean, these people I, I mentioned, don't. You know, they've gone so far to the right. You know, Mindy said something. I think it's like almost 80% of people support some immigration reform, and certainly the Dreamers. We couldn't get the Dreamers passed. These people uh, are dominated by a, a, a core in, in their primaries uh, of very right-wing people and, and on immigration. Obviously, as you said, it doesn't help when they see thousands of people. But even if they didn't have tens of thousands of people at the border, they're not for it. Even though the vast majority of people, including a majority of Republicans, do support immigration reform. So we're in a pickle. Um, I think Democrats got to die on the sword for it. Because like cessat said, this isn't, and all of us agree, this isn't the number one issue for us. But when you're not on this issue, you're basically saying to us, you're not for us. Uh, even there are other issues that are even more important. So I'd say... Uh, the Democrats got to fall on their sword uh, before this session is out on immigration, even if it means losing uh, on some level, if they're going to demonstrate to people uh, that, you know, we really are a priority. Uh, and, um, and then I think, you know, um, you know, the Democrats are going to have to understand uh, we're evenly divided. We're overly reliant on two senators Uh, that aren't going to pass a $3 trillion um, program, which I could support, but, uh, you know, uh, they're not going to support. So we're going to have to compromise here. Uh, Should we have to compromise in this setting? No. But, you know, you and I have been involved a long time. You know, you maybe don't want to compromise, but then you should get another job because that's what these jobs require. Uh, and particularly in these times when we're so polarized.
2: So, Senator, so you're in dialogue with many Republican strategists for many of these campaigns. Is that part of their dialogue at all? Are they interested? Do they look at any kind of comprehensive reform in, in this whole area? Is there a pathway for or is there any leadership within Republican groups to really start moving in a direction to at least start looking at comprehensive uh, immigration reform? Well, let me put it this way.
0: It's Ronald Reagan is the one that did first that uh, great immigration reform back in the 80s. I mean, it's a uh, George Bush tribe. And I remember we worked on efforts. I remember even Senator McCain was telling us, hey, mobilize people because we're in for it, on it for it. And uh, you saw that President Obama won it. Uh, Then you have the Gang of Eight. I I just think perhaps the politicians and some of them are there. But uh, as Antonio was saying, uh, this is not the the Republican Party that we worked with, uh, yeah. and, and Bush, and McCain, and Romney, and Jeb, who was going to be the best Latino candidate from the Republican side, I would say. Uh, but definitely, it's difficult. I think we had an opening at the beginning of the year during the pandemic, understanding the essential workers. So I think it's redefining, as, as Mindy was saying, the essential workers, the ones that are giving their lives for you so you can get food on your table, your medicines. I think we need to get away a little bit from the numbers and get more into the emotions. At the end of the day, we're all immigrants. And I remember when we were working with uh, Senator McCain on the OA presidential campaign, and uh, we did a spot with him that was called Look at the Wall, and it was all the Latinos that bravely fought in the different wars defending the country. And I think we need to start figuring out something different than just numbers numbers, because it's not working. And uh, I'm optimistic, but realistic as well. We, we we had a very good opportunity at the beginning of the pandemic, I think, but right now it's fading because people are getting vaccinated and they don't see the essential worker as essential anymore. So difficult situation, but as Antonio was saying, we just need to keep on trying. That's for sure.
2: Keep trying. That's all we do. Well, we are very persistent as a community. Uh, Mindy, um, we certainly saw in the census that that we were the largest growing population in this country. Uh, And amongst the growing population, it is that we have a lot of young people within our population are now becoming voters. Um, Do you see a a dramatic difference between the younger Latino voter as compared to their elders as, as they look at issues?
4: Great question. I think um, certainly from surveys, right, that what we've seen out um, for a number of years that younger Latinos, younger people, period, but um, certainly within the Latino community, um, there is a, a recognition for the importance of social justice, racial and social justice, environmental issues. But still on the big issue, you know, so I said big issues, forgive me, not the big issues, I'm not prioritizing issue over issue, but still on the the mainstay issues that we always see kind of up at the top you know, um, of surveys like uh, health care, like uh, the economy, um, like jobs. Younger people still, right, think that is also very much important um, as well. Um, for what's interesting to me is, uh, particularly in California, the voting patterns, as we were talking about the rising electorate, um, you know, youth vote at much lower rates than older voters, period. Um, Latino youth are no exception. Except one area, the gap between young and old within the Latino community, within the Latino vote itself, um, at least certainly in California, um, is smaller than if you look at the gap between um, white youth and older, like 65 plus older whites. So I I do want to recognize the... You know, we know, uh, youth are a larger part of the Latino electorate period because Latino electorate, just like the population, skews younger, but also the gap in just their turnout rates. Um, younger people, in a sense, are kind of having an outsized impact, if I dare use that word. Um, and they should get credit. Um, young Latinos should get credit for what they're doing in our communities. And, um, and I don't think they get enough credit for that and linking it back to their policies that they care about. Um, that's, that's while at the same time, uh, the issues that young people care about are often not talked about enough, not talked about sometimes, period. They're not um, addressed and engaged on the issues directly because they're seen as not likely voters. Um, and they're out there still participating and, and having it making a difference. But, it, but also, lastly, I'll say, because of the lower turnout rates that still are present amongst younger, younger members of the community, um, there still is a lot of work and a lot of support. That needs to be done to help young Latinos transition into voting but right now they're having kind of an outsized impact just because um, of how they have been performing um, in our state hopefully that makes sense
2: and it does but you know it's, it's interesting um, that so many i know is that when i was a young latina and as an activist i just automatically became a democrat and my parents were democrats and so on I don't think that with young voters today, they don't identify as automatically uh, with, with the Democratic Party. They're more independent. They're really looking at issues. I think they're sort of up for grabs. They're not necessarily following that tradition of my, my parents are Democrats, so I'm a Democrat as well. And even if they're Democrats, they're still varied on issues and have a lot of, of uh, criticism as to how the party has been taking them for granted. Uh, and so I'm going to see that more and more of our young people are becoming much more independent. I think that's why I've been seeing it across the board. Antonio, what do you think?
3: I think that's right. Uh, I think Decline uh, declined State is the fastest growing uh, political affiliation, if you will, or non-affiliation uh, in California, actually. Um, and there's no question that Latino young people care more about the issues that Mindy spoke about. I think that's correct. I will say the, the the difference between the Latino voter, young Latino voter participation, and their parents is has something to do with they're they're a little more politically aware and uh, and the like. But it also their parents don't vote in the same numbers uh, that white people do too. So that's part of why uh, that chasm is as great. But uh, you know, look, I'm excited about the future. I have, as you do, uh, I have four I have four millennials. Uh, now, uh, and to, uh, I guess, Gen X or whatever, Um, uh, they care about the world around them. Uh, They want to make a difference. They all vote, thank God. Now, they're not as political as I am, or I I know that's true for your daughter as well, but they do care about the world around them, and I I think that's important. I, I think it's also, you know, we're living in a time, you know, you met me. Uh, in my thirties, uh, but if you had met me when in my 20s, well, even in my thirties, I was, you know, pro- probably not in the mainstream, if you will. Um, I saw the world. I saw the world black and white, and unfortunately, a lot of young people see the world black and white. And you know, the reality is there's a lot more gray. I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. Th- there's more gray in the world, and uh, our our politics are so polarized right now that it's really difficult to break out. So, um, you know, I'm excited about the future uh, and, and young people, but uh, we owe it to them. I, you know, I bought a house at 25 years old. I was a um, I worked at nonprofits uh, in the Center for Law and Justice, the East LAL Task Force. Uh, I worked at the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. I wasn't an entrepreneur or something, but back then you could buy a house on the east side uh, at 25. Our kids can't buy a house today without our help. Uh, Our kids don't have the same, you know, the the cost of an education is way beyond even most middle-class families' needs. So we we need to make good on the promise that we were able to enjoy uh, for young people. And I think if we do, you'll see a lot more Interest and in wanting to get involved and maybe taking a side, but importantly, um, in yeah, feeling like they have a stake in this country.
2: So, Cesar, so, what do you think of our young people and as comparison to their elders when it comes to voting or voting patterns?
0: Well, we're a young population, well, not me, but Latinos are a young population, as Mindy was saying. And, and here's the thing, as like Antonio was saying, please, the things are so radicalize on both sides that I think younger Latinos are saying, hey, wait a minute, why do I have to identify with either or party? So I think here's an idea for candidates. I, I know in the primaries each side is going to pull to their side, but they need to go to the center. If they want to get Latinos, because we're not labeled as one party or the other, really try to connect them to a more centrist type of message. I, I, I know it sounds dreamy, dreamish, but hey, we're dreamers. Uh, we have to look at that. If not, kids are not going to react. But the most important thing is that we have a more engaged generation. And I think always the second generation will be more involved. And uh, being that we're the future, I mean, the next chapter of the country will be written by Latinos. So it's, it's not about only saying, hey, if younger or older, it's I think with the numbers comes a responsibility. We are carrying the next, uh, the future of this country today. So, uh, so I think that the messaging from politicians need to say, hey, I'm going to talk to young and all Latinos, but I'm going to try to do it in the center. Because if we try to tell them, hey, Latino, you have to be a Democrat or guess what? You should be a Republican. I don't think they're going to
4: connect that way. That's true. You know, we keep talking about candidates and parties, right? But of course, there are um, numerous in our state and across the country, non um, community groups, statewide groups that do work, do uh, have a huge impact in the Latino community in terms of educating about issues and and, and transitioning people into voters and, and all of that. So I just want to say that um, they they play a critical role in any election, regardless of where you think, uh, where you are on the political spectrum. But they also play a political role with just what was said in terms of um, making those connections to why participation is important, period. And often they can have a much better um be much more impactful and be much more successful because they're trusted messengers from the community talking about issues that are relevant and right and real in the community versus maybe misinformed sometimes by candidates or parties. Well, my last question before
2: we take questions, it's, you know, we we really have to talk about our stories and uh, I know that, that they're important stories uh, and we all at least I was educated in public schools and certainly we never heard our stories. We weren't part of the history at all. Um, And we need to change that, but um, we need to start looking at how we're going to get into the textbooks and make sure that our civic leadership is recognized. The contributions of Latinos throughout this country in building this country have been a significant part. Um so, how do we begin that process of creating that kind of dialogue because our children are missing out tremendously when they don't see themselves in any way have been a part of of the growth of this country of the evolution of this country, and certainly uh, of all that makes it great? Uh, what do we need
4: to start doing to start changing that? Mindy? I would say that first off, I just want to recognize that in in, in some ways many ways to for me, I think we're at a, at a more difficult time. Like there's been much progress made, not nearly enough, obviously. Um, but we're at a time right now where people are questioning um, it, in serious ways. Right, it's part of like a political strategy. Um, what should be in our schools? What you know? Is it safe to talk about? Can can government teachers talk about voting? Can people talk about the sixteen? You know, the sixteen nineteen project. Can people talk about? Um, uh, history as we know it without it being perceived as political. So I think the schools uh, and school boards and those that make these sort of decisions are actually um, purposely right up, up further up against a wall in terms of not that that should be something that should be given into but by any means don't let me get uh, suggest that but I think we're just at a really difficult period right now I know I do a lot of work in schools I talk about the youth vote um, and I'm hearing from teachers and administrators that it feels more political just to talk about your right to vote and how to vote, not candidates. But if, you know, the teachers are sometimes concerned that that's a conversation might turn political, the young people talking about the issues they care about and therefore candidates they care about that that becomes a territory that is uncomfortable, right. Or even potentially dangerous in a classroom these days. I just, so I, I want to recognize that. um, And I'm not quite sure how to get around all of that either, but please.
3: I think it's even deeper than that. Uh, You know, Gloria, as you know, I, I started out at uh, 15 years old in uh, walkouts uh, at Cathedral High School. I was kicked out of school. I I graduated with, a, I went to Roosevelt High School where they put me, coming from a college prep education, they put me in basic reading classes and math classes. I, I dropped out of high school. Uh, I went back because I had a great teacher, Herman Katz, and a mom that emphasized education and uh, inspired me to come back. I went to school four nights a week. I graduated with a 1.4 grade point average. Went to East L.A. College and I got, uh, you know, 3.6 or something and 40 degrees and went to UCLA on Affirmative Action Program. I tell people I, I got here because of great and generous America and on the shoulders of people who fought to open up the universities. Fast forward 34 years later, the high school I graduated from, Roosevelt High School, um, had a graduation rate of 25% in 1971 when i got elected mayor uh, they had improved they were now at 36% la unified the l- the largest school district of latinos anywhere in the country almost 80% of the school district 700,000 are uh, you know latino had, one out of three schools were failing and a, they had a 44% graduation rate by the time i left i took on the schools and i took on my friends i had worked for the teachers union I took them on, not because I'm anti-union, but I took them on because I said, I'm tired of failing schools for two generations. By the time we left, it went from one out of three schools to one out of 10, from a 44% graduation rate to 72. It's now at 82. My 20 schools, which were at 36, are now at 87. Our kids can learn. And, you know, we mentioned we're the fastest growing demographic in the country. This isn't about Latinos. I'd be fighting for these kids if they were all Irish or all black. But the fact of the matter is, in California, if we don't educate these kids, it's not just the kind of educate. We're not educating them, period. Only 13% of us are getting a four-year college degree in an economy based on intellectual capital and knowledge. So uh, from my vantage point, uh, why was I so upset? in the last two years because our kids got impacted like no other uh, group, because they're disproportionately in our public schools and our public schools were closed to them. I'll tell you, the party that gets that we've got to educate these kids and really demonstrates to their parents that they're gonna do everything in their power to invest. And yes, you have to invest. You have to invest in Gloria Molina and Antonio Villaragosa more than our kids. Our kids grew up middle class. You know, we gave them the best education. Both of us sent them to, you know, the best schools we could. Um, they, they were in a different situation, but most of our community are not in that situation. So it seems to me that if, if we're going to do something uh, to really open up the country and the California dream uh, to Latinos, we've got to educate the kids. We've got to make sure we invest in them in the way that we really haven't. Neither party has. Uh, because, as I said, we were the la- this blue state was the last state to open up those schools. And we've lost, in LA Unified alone, a few hundred thousand kids and more than a million statewide. And they're disproportionately Latino.
2: So, Cesar, are, are they telling our story in our textbooks? Are we educating kids? Is there something to be said about who we are? It seems like we're really absent in the whole history of America. Yeah, and we've been present. I remember I did a video about the
0: heroes, Latino heroes in American history. And we can start with Junipero Serra since the War of Independence. And you have the Tejanos that fought for independence of Texas. I mean, you have so many stories, but not talking about the story, but about the future, as Antonio was saying. I remember with Lionel Sosa, we worked with President Bush on O3 on, on that initiative of Hispanic higher education. And precisely was the term, I mean, again, coming that a huge uh, population growth of the country, we need to educate Latinos for the benefit of the country. And I remember that, and as Antonio mentioned, whomever sends that message will get a lot of attention. And remember, uh, uh, George Bush got 40% of Latino vote in 2004. I mean, we can debate 40, 43, 42, but something like that. And it was because he cared about Latinos because it's part of the American
2: Not history again, it's American today, what we are part of. We have uh, one audience question out there. It's from Anonymous. But the question to all of us is, do you think the progressive agenda is a Latino agenda? Antonio?
3: I think it can be. Uh, I'm a progressive and my whole life I've fought for that agenda. By the way, long before it was popular to call yourself a progressive, I was calling myself a progressive uh, in the 1970s. I, I think progressive is about progress just like conservative, is about maintaining uh, where we are and, and cherishing those values. Uh, I think uh, there's a distortion today in the sense that, you know, at, when, when the country is so evenly divided, you need people that can bring us together. You know, uh, I became mayor for one reason. I didn't run as a Latino, Gloria. You know that. and You remember that. Right. I, I want to be a mayor for everybody. Now, of course, I was proud. I speak Spanish. I speak Spanish as well as anyone uh, who uh, grew up in an English-speaking home. You know, uh, I've always focused on issues that, you know, I did healthy families. 750,000 kids got health care. 70% of them were Latino. But at the end of the day, we need leaders that can bring us together too and that want to be leaders for all of us and that want to bring this, you know, as Cesar said, You know, I call it the radical center, which is the center that moves us ahead. But, you know, the center, because if you got one party dominated by the right and the extreme right, not conservatives, the extreme right, and another party, maybe not dominated, but have a very vocal, uh, ideologically pure left, you know, we need to govern. You know, I tell people. The, the way I governed as mayor was different than when I first started out, as you remember your uh, appointee on the RTD board. You know, you grow and you realize, hey, they got elected, too, and we've got to work with them. So I think I, I got no problem with, with the idea of progressive. I think progressive, it can be a Latino agenda, but I think we've got to move it forward in a way that understands the country's evenly divided. And we've got to, let's focus on the things that most people agree on.
2: We have a question from David Ayon, and I'm going to read this. If you're going by the exit poll, Trump improved his Latino vote share, in particular Florida and South Texas, but still lost the majority of Latino vote in both states. The same Edison exit showed Trump not improving at all in California. Do you think that has to do with California Latino electeds actually doing a good job, both in policymaking and in politics? Mindy, you want to take this
4: one? Good numbers. Um... You know, I don't think so, necessarily. Um, I think so. it's just a reflection of our overall um, politics in this state um, and the Democratic registration amongst Latinos, for instance. Were, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there.
2: <laughs> okay. Cesar, anything to add on that? Well, California is
0: Disneyland for Democrats and Latinos. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great place. Just think about what happens in other parts of the country. But, but, but I think it's, in a way... You, you have a situation right now that whomever sends the right message, it's open. And I remember we did for Mi Familia Bota back in the in the midterms on 08 I mean, in 2018, uh, a spot that was called Stop Las Trumpadas, meaning that the slaps on the face that Trump was giving us while he was talking, because people told us in focus groups, whenever he talks, I feel like a slap on the face. Well, if he was an, an If he was talking so badly about us and still got those numbers, it's something to worry. To be honest, I mean something because Donald Trump definitely. I'm very proud that with the Lincoln Project we did a little grain of that. We helped a little bit that Donald Trump got didn't get reelected, but he's still out there. He can still make inroads, and uh, in a way, you have to understand that if someone with that tone can still get that high number, it's something that you have to be careful, care about. And I would tell Democrats, really, as Antonio was saying, go center, don't, don't think that you're gonna have to go left, 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 guess what? You've you got those guys already on your side and don't go right. Go into the center and try to grab this new generation of Latinos that are not raised uh, Democrat or Republican. They're trying just to fit. And if you open the tent, they'll fit with you.
3: Yeah. To answer David's question, to answer David's question, I do think we've made a difference, Gloria. I, I know the work that you did. You know we haven't always agreed on everything, but I I know the focus you had on our community, uh, and you represented a broader community as I did and worked with everybody. But you know we were we were the most underrepresented group in California in so many respects, even though we're the fastest growing and the largest ethnic group. I think Fabian Nunez uh, has made a difference. I think. Uh, you know, uh, John Perez, you know, uh, Kevin DeLeon. There's, there's a whole slew of, of electives in the Congress who, who have made a difference in this community. And, and I think people recognize that.
2: And they're responding. They're responding to, to the issues in the community and moving those policy issues forward. So that is something that we don't necessarily see in other states. So we've had tremendous political leadership here in California. really looks like, Mindy, you want to add
4: something. We're going to have to end it real soon, but go ahead. Just a distinction I want to make. So over time, definitely, there has been strong Latino leadership within nonprofit community groups and, of course, um, amongst elected officials in this state. So I want to make sure that's clear, because the question was specifically 2016 to 2020. Um, and you asked about elected officials, but, you know, I, I do think, as I said, it's, it's, a, it's the um, political affiliations in our state, the blueness of our state, but it's also the great work that was done, period, regardless of where you are politically, just the, the mobilization, the outreach, the community touch, so many different organizations did in the state to get Latinos to um, think about the election, to make their decision, to to, uh, to inform them. Um, and so I just, the unsung sung heroes of the conversation today, I think are all of the, the great work that was done in communities with, um, Latino-led organizations. And a lot of that leadership there and politically came out really from, emerged out of the movement around Proposition 187, and we should acknowledge that as well.
3: Right. Well, even before that, that some of us have been involved since we were kids in the 1960s and uh, and even before that, the GI Forum, the the LULAC uh, coming up from the war. We, We all stand, as I've said, at my inauguration in 2005, I stand on the shoulders of people like Gloria and uh, you know, Art Torres and Richard Alatorre and all the people, you know, Roy Ball, all the people that came before me, uh, all of them could have been mayor. I just was fortunate enough that, uh, you know, I came around at the right time and was lucky enough to be the guy. But we all come on the shoulders of others. And I agree. Ultimately, it is about, you know, some political leadership. But, you know, community leadership is important. And, and you know, that m- masses of people who, who want change is also very important.
2: We have one last question from Luisa Olagi. I'm going to answer it myself. And she's talking about what it looks like for redistricting in L.A. and will there be additional two Latino opportunity seats? I think that many of us are looking at the huge growth here in L.A. County. Uh, And while it's going to be very challenging as we're looking at redistricting, as it always is, and we all know it's about power, we hope there will be an opportunity to have the two additional Latino opportunity districts of some expansion on the City Council and also opportunities on the Board of Supervisors. Uh, I know that for a long time people have been talking about getting more members of the Board of Supervisors since uh, LA County is 10 million people, but um, until we change that for now, hopefully we're going to have districts that are going to create more opportunity for Latinos since we represent almost 50% of the population here in LA County. So I'm going to end it with that. I'm going to kick it back over to Bob, who's going to end the program for us, right? So, Bob, it's all yours.
1: Thank you for a terrific panel, uh, Gloria, Antonia, uh, Mindy, and Cesar. Thanks to our audience. Join us next Tuesday at noon for the next edition of the Bully Pulpit, which will be on voting rights and voting wrongs with a powerful array of voices. Linda Chavez, conservative commentator, chair of the Center for Equal Opportunity, who worked for President Reagan in the White House, Theodore Johnson from the Brennan Center, Ralph Neese, the former executive director of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, and Pete Peterson from the Institute for Public Engagement at Pepperdine University. On behalf of the Center for the Political Future, let me say goodbye. Have a great day and a great week. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at U-S-C-P-O-L Future. That's U-S-C-P-O-L Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs.